The following audio is from The Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Well, again, good morning, Grove Church. How are we today? I think online you guys are louder, so thank you for tuning in. Just kidding. So glad you're here today. Welcome back to In Person. Uh, thank you for, I just want to say this right out the gate. We appreciate you guys. We appreciate your prayers as a staff. We love our church family and are very thankful for you uh, as we continue to lean into the season of what God's doing and where he's taking us. And so thank you uh, for all that you have done so far. Thank you for being here today. Uh, and if you're tuning in, lo- in online, thank you for tuning in as well. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've not had the chance to meet you and I get to continue our Enemy at Work series, we are part six into this series. Uh, if you're taking notes today, we are going to be in John chapter three. Uh, and as you're turning there, hopefully you brought a Bible. Uh, you can turn into the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. We're gonna be in chapter three today. Maybe you have your smartphone, has the Bible app. We'd love for you to join in and jump on that as well. If you didn't bring a Bible or have a smartphone app, we got you covered. Scripture will be on the screen as well, so you're able to follow along with us. As you're turning there, I have a very simple question for you today. What did you do when you recognized you were wrong? What do you do? How do you respond when you find out you're wrong about something? Now, I know some of the joke is that our wives are never wrong. We're just admitting that they're right, always right. Um, but my question to you is, what do you do when you're wrong? Now, I remember as a kid, all it took was two words for me to come clean and admit that I was wrong. And it was words out of my mother's mouth. If you're tuning in online today, mom, hi. Uh, I'll do you proud, I hope. But it's, she always say this, Aaron Matthew in this tone, and immediately my response was tears in my eyes because I recognized I was found out. And there was one moment specifically I remember uh, in our house in Virginia when I lived there as a kid. We were in the Navy. We were shifting houses in the Navy development, uh, housing development. And so we had to clean, pack our house up just like you would do any house. We had to clean it. And my mom and dad were in my room specifically. I think I shared with my brother at this time. And she asked me, she's like, hey, Aaron, can you come here, please? I'm like, yeah, mom, no problem. You know, you innocent, think you're okay. And then she's like, hey, what happened to the shelf in your closet? See, we used to play hide and seek in my house, and that's not a bad thing. When it becomes a bad thing is when you're hiding in places that you're not supposed to, you know what I'm saying? And the closet shelf was one of those places you're not allowed to hide in. And I remember hiding there because that's the only place you can hide and not be found out is because your siblings know you're not supposed to hide in those places. So why would you not hide there? Because you don't want to get found out, right? That's my thought process. So I remember she called me and I walk in. She's like, hey, Aaron, do you know what happened to your shelf? It's broken. It's bent. It's damaged. Your dad has to fix it now. And I was like, no, I don't know what happened. See, I had, I have one of two options in that moment, right? I can hide and deny Say, no, I don't know anything. I'm going to lie about it. I'm going to hide. Or I can own it. I can confess. And I can ask for forgiveness. I chose the lie and hide option because that was the brilliant option in, in my childhood mentality. And I remember she's like, Aaron Matthew? And I'm like, I hid on this closet shelf. And I was in trouble. I knew I was in trouble. And my mom was gracious to me. I didn't get any spankings in that time of my life. Now I've been spanked. And I got some stories about that. But... I recognized in the moment, in hindsight, that I probably should have just owned it, confessed it, and and repented, right? I should have said, Mom, I I hit on there. I should have hit on there. And I'd like to think 37 years old now compared to my eight or nine-year-old self then that I've matured quite a bit. But if I'm being honest with you, 
there has been moments where I look and reflect on the decisions in my life and realize that I'm not much different than the eight or nine-year-old version. That when I'm faced with the recognition that I did something wrong, my first tendency is to want to lie and hide. So my question to you today is, what do you do when you recognize or have been found out of something you've done wrong? See, as we jump into John chapter 3 today, as we take into part 6 of this series, there's one thing I think we can understand, that there's a very real difference between knowing what we should do and actually living in response to truth, right? It's the difference between knowing the truth versus living in response to it. And in John chapter 3, we're going to see that this tension Jesus addresses is this knowledge of truth, this knowledge of hope, and that the enemy's tactic against you and I today is to put us in a position of inaction, where we're content and comfortable knowing truth, but not living in response to truth. And so Jesus says this in John 3, 16 to 21. It says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. If you have a hard copy Bible, I would love for you to underline these words. I just lost, there it is. God's light came into the world, but the people loved the darkness more than the light. For their actions were evil. Verse 20 says, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come into the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Let's pray today for God's word. Lord, we thank you. For your word. We thank you that you promise it to be sharper than a double-edged sword, that it's alive and active. And Lord, today I simply ask that on behalf of my church family that we would posture ourselves in a manner where we are giving you platform to speak to our hearts, to reveal your truth to our hearts. Lord, that where there is this truth that is powerful, that is liberating, that is, is transformative, God, I pray that it would lead us to a place of action, that we would walk out bold and confident knowing that the enemy has no ability and no stronghold because his tactic doesn't work. We thank you today for your word and we pray that you would take the next few moments and use my words and speak clearly through me. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. See, many of us are familiar with part of this passage, right? John three sixteen and 17. Mostly three sixteen. We many of us know in this room, many outside of this room know that this verse. It's this beautiful picture of the gospel summed up into two sentences. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He came for salvation. And the truth is he did not come for condemnation or judgment, right? We know this in verse 16 and 17. This truth, this verse should be the foundation that radically transforms our lives. It should never get old to see and hear these words. And my prayer for us today is that as we hear these words, that it's not just like, hey, that's a good word, that's a good verse, I have that embroidered on a pillow in my house, or I threw it up on a wall because it's just a great verse, but that this truth would be deeply liberating for you and I today because it's meant to transform everything we do. It should influence and inform everything, and I mean everything. It should transform how we treat 
others. If God so loved the world, now it's interesting to note that in the, whenever the New Testament uses the, world, the word world, it's actually talking about broken, sinful people. It's always used in a sinful sense that God loved the world. He loved the sinners. He loved the broken. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world or to judge the world. He came in the world to redeem and save humanity. If that's true, then how you and I treat others should follow suit. It should change the way we see people because we're all image bearers. God created man and woman, humankind in his image. See, it should change the way we work, what we do, what we do with our hands, what we do with our minds, what we do with our ability. It should change the way we work as unto the Lord. When we recognize how loved we are, when we recognize how much he cares for us, when we recognize that he gave up his son, it should change the way we understand what we put our hands to, right? If the gospel is so powerful, if this picture is so powerful, it should change the way we give. It should change what and why we give in general because if God so loved the world and that he gave, our ability to be generous should reflect the same generosity in the heart of God, amen? If the gospel is so powerful, if this passage is so powerful, it should change the way we serve because there's joy in serving. As I was typing up my notes, I was sitting on my back deck at our, our patio table. I've got a beautiful little peekaboo view of water and the sun, when it's, and it's hot when it's in the back. And I was sitting there typing up my notes, and I, I wrote down this one little line that how, it should change how we serve. There's joy in serving when we know the depth of Christ's love and service. And it hit me. Where I looked into my house, where my wife was so gracious to me and letting me sit on the back deck, not worrying about the kids, and I was like, Lord, if this is true, then I'm not serving well enough yet. And I stopped and paused for a moment and I said, God, help me that this truth of your love being given for me would translate the way that I give in serving my family and my wife. If John 3, 16 and 17 is true, it should change the way we serve I just performed a wedding yesterday up in Arlington, beautiful day for it. And I'm adamant when I talk to people and couples that are looking to get married, when I walk through premarital with them, when I walk through their ceremony with them, when I'm talking to them in the midst of the ceremony, I'm adamant to remind them that Jesus should change the way you marry. If you're married in this room today, if you're aspiring to be married in this room today, if one day you're dreaming about being married in this room today, Jesus and John 3, 16 and 17 should change the way you understand marriage. Because Paul is very clear in Ephesians, where the marriage is a mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. That men, we are called to as husbands, lay down our lives for our wives. And wives, you are called to as wives to submit to the leadership of your husband. Jesus modeled both sacrifice and submission. And if we remember Jesus, we remember John 3, 16 and 17, it should change the way we marry and are married. Because it's no longer about us, but it's about Jesus and our spouse. John 3, 16 and 17, his love is so extravagant, it should change the way we sing. I love my father-in-law. One of my first interactions with him, 
I remember sitting in his house as I was there for, I don't know if it was a meal or if I was just picking up Cassie because we were going to go hang out for a bit. I remember him walking around in the kitchen and he'd, he'd have two phrases that were often very humorous to me. And as I'm older and I understand a little bit better, I was, I'm very thankful for them. And he would say, goody, goody gumdrops for Jesus and ha ha on the devil. And as a 18, 19, 20-year-old kid, 22, 23, I was kind of like, that's a funny phrase. And then there'd be moments he would break out in song and say, thank you, Jesus. God, you're so good to me. Jesus transforms, has transformed his life so much so that he finds reason to sing. There's that, that, that hymn, I believe, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches over me. I love the truth of that because it should change how we sing because there's so much joy in this life we get to live because of Jesus. It should change everything about our lives. It, shouldn't change, it should change how we engage this world we're living in because you and I as followers of Christ are called to be ambassadors. This is not our home. We're representing our home and the eternal relationship with Jesus. John 3, 16 and 17 is this truth and this hope that you and I get to live to. Our actions and motivations should mirror the God who loved the world. Why are you saying this so long, Aaron? Because I don't want us to miss this. Jesus doesn't stop the conversation there. He says this in verse 18 to 21, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Continues on, he says, but anyone who does not believe in him or has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. If you have your hard copy Bible, I would encourage you to underline this verse. Verses 19 and 20, it says this, God's light came into the world, but the people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right will come to the light so others can see that what they are doing, what God wants. Here's the picture and the truth and the other side of this truth, that God so loved the world that he gave, but the other side of it is those who don't believe. And you may sit, you can sit here today and be like, well, Aaron, I believe in Jesus. I believe in John 3, 16. I believe in the hope of the world. I believe he's my savior. So I'm not included in that evil actions. I'm not included in those who love darkness. Here's the tension. In the biblical concept of belief, there is always requiring action. The enemy's tactic, the enemy desires to keep us stuck in a place where we believe in truth without action. See, when we say we believe in something today, it doesn't include action. So, yeah, I believe that's a good thought or I believe that's a good player. If you're doing fantasy football, I believe that he's going to be a number one prospect, right? If I believe my neighbor's a good person. But it doesn't involve action when we say we believe today culturally. Biblically, when the Bible says those who believe, it means that their actions have backed up what they have believed in. The enemy desires to keep us in a place where we're good with knowledge, but we don't want to go anywhere further to where it leads us to action. What Jesus is saying, that the truth in John 3, 16 and 17, the truth of God's love should lead us and compel us to action, not just knowledge. This picture in John 3, verses 19 and 20, this is, what I, this is how I, I see it play out in my mind. 
Before I go there, this is what C.S. Lewis says in his book. Sorry. Writing the screw tape letters, he's writing from the perspective of an older demon mentoring a younger demon, his nephew, Wormwood. And Screwtape writes this statement. He says this, it remains to be considered how we can retrieve this disaster. The disaster he's talking about is the subject and client of Wormwood has experienced the grace and gospel of Jesus and his life has been transformed because of it. Screwtape is rebuking his younger demon saying this is a disaster. You have ruined your options and chances. I don't know how we're gonna come back from this. He says this, the great thing is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. The enemy desires you to be content with knowledge, but no action. If he can lull us into sleep saying, I know these verses, they're good verses, and I love them, but I'm not going to do anything about them, he's winning. See, this picture where Jesus says that they have loved their darkness, this is how I I see it play out. I see us playing out with our backs to the light. And I see us saying, man, Jesus, that's a good thought. I like that. John 3, 16, good job, bro. Yeah, yeah, I love you too. But we're holding and hiding those things that Jesus wants to bring to light so we can bring freedom from our lives. See, we are oftentimes content knowing that God loves us, but not trusting that he does so we can bring to him anything. I believe we believe this lie that says that God does not love you. He is concerned with condemning you. He wants to judge you based upon your choices, your lifestyle, and your actions. But John 3, 16 and 17 say differently. John 3, 16 says God so loved the world broken, sinful state, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes with action responds to truth, he'll have eternal life. Then he reinforces it in 17, says, God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world, that all might be saved through him. But how many times do we believe this lie that says, God doesn't love me enough to where he's gonna actually accept me with all of my darkness? When we choose to believe only in theory and not live in action, we are loving our darkness more than the truth. And the enemy loves it. Now here's the truth. I want to be very clear about this. There is judgment of sin. There is condemnation for sin. But as individuals who have crossed the line of faith, who have put their hope in Jesus... That wrath against sin has been satisfied in the death and resurrection of Christ. We're in this weird place of having salvation and experience a right standing with God, but in this journey of our humanity, recognizing that we're still being saved as the days go on. It's this weird thing called the already not yet tension. But John 3.16 is meant to transform and challenge us to live in response to truth, not just the knowledge of it. Not to love our own darkness, but to willingly turn to Jesus and let the light of his truth and love expose those things in our lives that are not in alignment with who we are. See, my son or my daughter, my youngest daughter is still too young to really discipline her, which sounds really weird to say. She's only one year old. 
But when my son or my oldest daughter, they misbehave or they're doing something that is contrary to, to righteous living, to who they are in Christ, it's my job as a parent to lovingly discipline them so they would be drawn back to walk in the truth of who they are. Now, let me be honest with you. I'm not always the best at disciplining. Sometimes I dwell too much on the perfection side of things based upon how I'm wired. But my heart is always love. My heart is always to see them restored into the truth of who they are. My daughter will get frustrated and she'll start speaking negatively about herself. She'll be like, I'm never gonna do this. I'm never gonna understand this. She gets her drama from her dad. You're welcome. And it's my job as a parent to lovingly redirect. Like, that's not true. Don't speak that over yourself. Daniel Tiger, if you know anything about Mr. Rogers, there's a show called Daniel Tiger. If you got little kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My son was singing the song the other day, keep trying, you'll get better. He sings better than I do. But it's to reinforce the truth of who they are in Jesus, not based upon their performance. See, if all we do is come to a gathering and we hear this message about God's love is so extravagant, his love is so amazing, and we walk out nodding our heads without letting the Holy Spirit bring us to action, the enemy's winning. I love what Richard Foster says because I would suggest to us today the reason why that you and I have a tendency to love our darkness and not come and trust God to expose the things in us out of love is that we forget John 3, 16 and 17. That we look at verses 18 to 21 and we say, well, he's judging me, he's condemning me. I love what Richard Foster says, who's an author. He wrote a book called The Celebration and Discipline Among Many Others. But he says this, he says that the heart of God is the desire to give and to forgive. Because of this, he set in motion the entire redemptive process that culminated in the cross and was confirmed in the resurrection. Love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Golgotha, which is the place of the skull, it's also a place where Jesus died, came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. The truth of God's word, the truth of John 3, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, is that God so loved the world that he gave his son for salvation, for hope, for redemption. And when the Holy Spirit brings things in our lives, when the light of his word exposes behaviors or patterns or choices that are not in alignment with his word, it's not judgment that God is giving. It's not condemnation that God is bringing. It's called conviction because we're not living in light of the truth of who Jesus says we are and the truth of God's love for you and for me. His desire is to restore you and to redeem you. And it doesn't mean there's not going to be consequences of some choices we make. There are consequences to choices. When I broke the shelf in my house, I was grounded, even after I owned it. But God's grace was sufficient in that moment just as much as through my parents, as me learning and understanding, like, okay, my mom still loves me. Okay, cool, that's a win. Where are you resisting his love? 
that exposes then in turn where you're loving darkness. So how then do you and I, based upon this understanding, live in response to truth? If we all can understand and agree and know that knowing truth is vastly different than living in response to truth, how do you and I then begin to live in response to truth daily? And it's through one simple word I would give you today, and that's called repentance. See, my fear is that we have a, a, a limited understanding of what repentance really means, where I think it's a religious word for many of us. Why well, I make a bad choice, I do something that I, don't, I know God's not pleased with, and I need to come to God, say I'm sorry, and then move on with my life. As a little kid, I remember at five years old, getting mad at one of my friends in my neighborhood and yelling at him and calling him an idiot. I'm pretty sure that that's the word I use. You're an idiot. And I immediately felt this wave of conviction and I had this fear like God's leaving me. He's leaving my heart. When I prayed and asked him to come in my heart, he's running away from me because I called my friend an idiot. And I remember running up the stairs of my house in Fox Creek Circle, getting down on my knees by my bed and said, dear Jesus, please forgive me for calling my friend an idiot and please come back into my heart. I was so worried that Jesus would reject me. When in hindsight, I now know that it's his love that brings us to repentance. It's God's kindness that should lead us to repentance. John 3, 16 and 17 should lead us to a place of response. So how do we practice this repentance? I think there's a very simple process. I think we have to start by thanking God for his heart to reveal in, in us through his truth where we aren't living in alignment with who we really are as his sons and daughters. That we're living in a contrary way that does not honor him with our current relationships, with our, with our, our mouths and the words we're saying, how we're treating our neighbors or our fellow man. Maybe you're being really greedy and selfish and you don't wanna serve or help. And it's in those moments where you stop and say, God, thank you that you love me so much that you would expose in me things that are not in alignment with who you are and who you want me to be. I think you not only acknowledge after saying thank you, I think you confess it. God, forgive me. God, I, I confess my selfishness to you. I confess the fact that I don't want to serve my family or serve my boss or serve uh, my neighbor by picking up that garbage. God, forgive me that I want to do things my way, that I don't want to trust you and be a light that you've called me to be. confess then we shouldn't say God please forgive me ask for forgiveness and grace and this is key then accept God's grace and forgiveness how many times do we ask for forgiveness but we walk away still dejected and beat up thinking man God I'm unworthy to be your servant I'm unworthy because I'm bad I make bad choices we haven't completed this process John 8 there's this passage where a woman is caught in the act of adultery and religious leaders throw her at Jesus' feet and says, hey, she was caught. The Old Testament law says we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? There was no humility. There was arrogance in their statement. And Jesus' response will let him without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, it says the religious leaders left, starting with the oldest. One who had the most authority left first, dropped his stone and left first. And as Jesus is finishing up what he's doodling in the sand, he looks up and says, woman, where are your accusers? She's like, well, they've all left, my Lord. And he's like, neither do I accuse you. 
Now go and sin no more. See, when we stop and we not just ask for grace and forgiveness, but we receive it, where we accept that God loves us, that God's love is extravagant, that he cares for me, that he's looking to redeem me, it changes the way I live. When I accept his grace and forgiveness, I can go and sin no more. See, the enemy desires us to hear truth but to not live in response to it. Where today do you feel the light of the Holy Spirit, the love of Jesus shining brightly in your heart and in your mind and in your choices? And what are you going to do about it? See, God's love is so extravagant that he saw a sinful broken world and he sent his son to die and redeem it. The hope of Jesus the truth and love of Jesus should compel us to respond because he loves us so extravagantly. So what do you need to do with what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today? Because we know there's a very big difference between knowing truth and living in response to the truth. Let me pray for you today. Lord, I thank you again for your word, your grace, your mercy. I thank you that it's based and rooted upon your son, Jesus, that you are the hope, the source, and everything we need. So Lord, today we surrender to you. I pray you would give us confidence in your truth that we wouldn't walk out here saying, yeah, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, but that we could walk out saying, Jesus, you love me like crazy. Here are the things that I feel you're tugging at my heart. Lord, forgive me for these things. God, help us to live in victory over the lies of the enemy because your heart is to liberate, your heart is to bring freedom, your heart is to redeem humanity, that we could walk forth and our lives would be transformed by the truth and the hope of who you are. So Lord, I thank you today for your word. I thank you that you care for each of us and I pray you would give us the courage and the discernment to trust in you fully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.